From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, July 18th. I'm Marco Werman. A bombing kills three top Syrian officials and changes the atmosphere in Damascus. The sense of fear has dramatically risen in the last two, three days. Also in Egypt, fears of an Islamist takeover at government-run newspapers. I consider this to be really uh, a major threat to freedom of uh, expression in Egypt. And later, the tale of a marathon runner who grew up during the war in Sudan. You only run when someone is chasing you to kill you. So you run to save your life. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. And by WGBH, producer of Market Warriors. Don't miss Market Warriors Monday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. A bomb ripped apart the highest echelons of Syria's security establishment today. The blast went off during a top-level meeting at National Security Headquarters in Damascus. State TV said the attack killed three top members of President Assad's inner circle. They are the defense minister, his deputy, who was also Assad's brother-in-law, and the head of the president's crisis team. Also, the interior minister and intelligence chief were reportedly wounded. The BBC's Lena Sinjab is in Damascus. After the bombing, she went on a government-run press tour of the city. The tour ended at Seven Fountain Square, where Sinjab says the atmosphere was eerie. There was this intense sense of fear, hardly any movement. It took me around like 20 minutes to find a cap in, an, in a street that used to be bustling. And all the shops were, uh, were closed there except for a couple of shops. One of them is a bakery shop that I saw was open. So you really get the sense of tense and fear feeling in Damascus today. Right, that sounds pervasive. But how much of Damascus uh, is actually in turmoil or battle today? Well, definitely in the areas we visited, which is like the main quarter of the city center, uh, there hasn't been any battles, not something that we have seen, but we definitely heard lots of gunfire. At some point, the gunfire was so close to us that I, I felt that I had to to, uh, to drop my head down. I was uh, worried that the something will come over my head. And that was near the Syrian television center, which is in Umayyad Square, so pretty much a central city. Damascus has seen punctuated bursts of violence in recent months, but I'm just wondering what feels different now if right in the city? Now, people in the center that have been away from the uh, hot clashes uh, for the last month are now in the heart of it. They can feel it. They can sense it. Uh, so that's why uh, the sense of fear has risen and the sense of concern over security has dramatically risen in the last two, three days. The BBC's Lena Sinjab speaking with us from Damascus. Frank Gardner is the BBC's security correspondent and has just returned from the Middle East. He says there are many conflicting reports about what happened today. If indeed it is a suicide bombing carried out, as it's been suggested, by one of the bodyguards of the people at this top-level national security meeting, then it's a triple blow, I think, for Bashar's regime. First, it's a personal blow to his family. Asif Shaukat, the deputy defense minister, was the 
brother-in-law of the president. He was married to, to Bushra, the president's sister, and therefore it's a huge blow to the family. It's a blow in terms of command and control. This, is, this was the family's man in the defense ministry. He was deputy minister, defense minister, but he was really almost like a commissar safeguarding the Assad's interests in the entire military structure. So hugely significant that he is now out of the picture with all the accumulated years of command and control and experience and loyalties bought and built up over that time. Thirdly, it is a blow to them that somebody is able to get right inside the heart of the regime and mm -hmm. do this. That's quite a, quite a worry to them, which will cause members of this regime to look over their shoulders and think, maybe it's time to jump ship. Now, the bombing today, uh, as we said, killed the defense minister, Daoud Rajiha, and he was uh, immediately replaced by a, a new defense minister, General Fahad Jassim Al-Frej. What do you know about him? Absolutely nothing. Have you heard of him? I haven't. No. What, what do you think that indicates, there? though, that you, you, th this unheard of person is now the new defense minister? Is it meaning what? that uh, Assad's bench isn't that deep? Um, what, I, what I mean by that rather sort of frivolous response <laughs> is okay. that um, whereas Asif Shaukat, the deputy defense minister and brother-in-law of the president, is irreplaceable, the defense minister himself is replaceable. He's not from the Assad family himself. He's not from the close coterie. So they've been very quickly able to replace him, but they will never be able to replace the, the loyalty and prestige and contacts uh, and power that was built up by Asif Shaukat, who was in many ways much of the power behind this regime. Now, speaking of loyalty or, or uh, lack thereof, the Assad regime is also starting to suffer high-level defections. And earlier this week, you spoke with the highest-ranking defector so far, Nawaf Fares, who was uh, ambassador to Iraq from Syria. What did he tell you about the state of the Assad regime? Well, this is somebody who has been on the inside of the regime for 34 years. And for the last four years, he's been in the very sensitive post of Syria's first recent ambassador to, to Baghdad. And interestingly, today, he's had a lawsuit slung at him by the Iraqi government claiming that he was responsible for sheltering militants who've carried out bomb attacks in Iraq, which mm. he denies. Um, he was very unequivocal, saying that the regime's finished, it's the beginning of the end. He said that they will do anything to stay in power. He said that the government of Bashar al-Assad will inevitably fall. People can never be conquered or defeated. It's absolutely sure that this government will fall in a short time. Mm. Well, a lot of this is wishful thinking. And a lot of these people, of course, are maneuvering themselves to have some kind of a role and perhaps patronage in a future post-Bashar Syria. So, you know, I, I think we have to have a degree of skepticism here. When people say, I've left the regime because I was appalled by the bloodshed, it took them an awful long time to do it. And many of those who have left, or some of those who have left, defected, are standing accused of having blood on their own hands for the time they've spent inside this regime. That was the BBC security correspondent Frank Gardner in London. News of today's attack in Damascus has reverberated throughout the region. The world's Matthew Bell is in Cairo. Matthew, how are Egyptians reacting to all the news of violence coming out of Syria? I think a lot of Egyptians, Marco, are, have been riveted to the news uh, for months. You know, there's a, there's a real sense that events here in Egypt are part of bigger changes in the Arab world. And anytime I talk to Egyptians and, and mention Syria, you know, the typical reaction is just people shaking their heads in disgust and horror, mm -hmm. really, because they've been seeing the, the violence for months and it's just awful. And they, and they really feel that maybe they're not part of that kind of thing here, but they're part of something that's connected. 
Now, Syria and Egypt don't share a border, but are some Syrians fleeing to Egypt? Absolutely, which is pretty astounding. There's an estimated 10 to 12,000 Syrians here in Egypt. Another interesting thing, Marco, is that in covering events here in Egypt over the last year and a half, I've been to many demonstrations where you see Egyptians waving Syrian flags, chanting chants against the regime of Bashar al-Assad. But of course, Matthew, most of those demonstrations in Cairo are about what's going on in Egypt and specifically uh, people's concerns about the political jockeying between Islamists and the ruling military council, which is what you're reporting on, right? That's right. Uh, There's a real competition between President Mohamed Morsi, who comes from the Muslim Brotherhood, and his supporters on the one side, and then the ruling military council and their supporters on the other side. At times, the, the fight has been very much one that's been in the streets. But more recently, it's moved to the courts. Uh, There are a number of different decisions moving along in various different courts, which is quite confusing. Many Egyptians don't know how that's going to play out in the end. Another place uh, that the competition has been unfolding is in the state-run media, uh, which is something I've been looking at recently. Right. In fact, Matthew, you've been reporting on this very issue and have a full report on that. So let's listen. There's no shortage of choices when it comes to Egyptian newspapers. A typical newsstand in Cairo will have more than two dozen different papers on sale. The three big state-owned papers are Al-Ahram, Al-Gamhoreya, and Al-Akbar. For many years, these were the most widely read newspapers in the country. Under the Mubarak regime, the editors of all government-run papers were political appointees. And by law, that is still the case. It's the Shura Council, or Upper House of Parliament, that is now sending signals about replacing top editors. Mohamed al-Baltegi is a senior official with the Muslim Brotherhood's Freedom and Justice Party, which holds a majority in the Shura Council. He says reappointing editors-in-chief at state newspapers is a top priority. It's not about limiting freedom of the press, he says. It's about getting rid of counter-revolutionary managers at government-owned newspapers. Are they working against the new president? These people are working in collusion, Balteki says, to attack President Morsi in the press, and they need to go. The media environment in Egypt, to put it mildly, is colorful. Rumors and speculation can drive news reporting. Even critics of the Muslim Brotherhood say the state-run papers have been guilty at times of blatant bias in favor of the ruling military council and against the Islamists. Ibrahim Khalil is the editor of Rose El Yusuf, a government-owned daily newspaper. Speaking with him at his downtown Cairo office, I asked Khalil about a recent article in his paper that might appear to be a cheap shot. It alleged U.S. funding went to the Muslim Brotherhood, and that money, in turn, went to Jewish companies operating in Egypt. Khalil says he stands by the story, and in time the allegations will become known. The Muslim Brotherhood will not control Egypt, Khalil says, and if officials in Washington think they can pressure Egyptians to accept Islamist rule, they've got another thing coming. Khalil will lose his job if the Islamist-dominated upper house of parliament does move to replace newspaper editors. But he says that's fine with him, because the move is all about imposing political control on state-owned newspapers. It was Egypt's former president, Gamal Abdel Nasser, who first nationalized major newspapers in 1960. Salah Issa started his career in the news business two years later. He's the editor of another government paper called Al-Qahira. 
هي ثوره مضاده للاخوان نعم There is a counter-revolution against the Muslim Brotherhood in some newsrooms, he says, but the way to fix the state-owned papers is not to carry out a purge against editors-in-chief. The problem, Isa says, is the way newspapers are managed. They should not be run by parliament. If that doesn't change, he says, the state-owned media will continue to be under political influence. Advocates for replacing top editors say economics is another factor. They argue that big state-owned newspapers are bloated, inefficient organizations that need to rethink their long, outdated business model. Still, the danger of politicizing news output is the real concern here, says Cairo University professor Mustafa Kamal Saeed. I would not be surprised if the new editors-in-chief would be in their majority very sympathetic to views of uh, Freedom and Justice Party and uh, the Muslim Brothers and Islamists in general. I consider this to be really uh, a major threat to freedom of uh, expression in Egypt. Officials with the Upper House of Parliament have said new editors-in-chief must meet certain criteria. Candidates must have 15 years of experience and be under the age of 60. They must not have served the former regime. and they must not support normalizing relations with Israel. The whole process of replacing editors at state-run newspapers could be put on hold, however, because an Egyptian court is currently deciding whether or not to dissolve the upper house of parliament, as was done with the lower house already. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Cairo. Still ahead, the extraordinary tale of a girl who survived a civil war thanks to a picture she kept in her pocket. on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. At the London 2012 Olympics, you can bet that the marathon is going to be one of the more grueling competitions. It always is. Gore Marial qualified for the event. No problem there. Turns out that was the easy part. Marial's big challenge is having a country to run for. The 28-year-old marathoner is from South Sudan, a country that only gained independence a year ago. It doesn't have a National Olympic Committee yet. So the International Olympic Committee told Marial that he could compete at the London Games if he ran for Sudan, which he doesn't want to do. Gore Marial lives and trains in Flagstaff, Arizona. Gore, tell us first of all why you don't want to run for Sudan. South Sudan is an independent country. It has own flag, it has own uh, citizen, it has own president. And it's just uh, not right to being an athlete from South Sudan and be able to go and compete for the Sudan, which is a country we already split from. I came to United States as a refugee. And for me to go back and represent the Sudan, which is a country I refuge from, just seemed to me not right. Right. I mean, so, and it's more than that for you because it's also personal. I mean, your your own family suffered at, at the hands of the Sudanese police and security forces. That is correct. To help our listeners better understand your personal reasons for not wanting to run under a Sudanese flag, just elaborate a bit on what happened to you and your family at the hands of the Sudanese while South Sudan was trying to become independent. I was born in a uh, small village And it's just on the border between the Sudan and the South Sudan. 
and during the time I was born, basically I was born into the war. And in 1993, it just became so hard for the young kid to be able to survive. My parents sent me to Khartoum. My uncle was right, living there. The capital there, of Sudan. The capital of Sudan. So my uncle was living there, and he was working with the Red Cross, where he helped the refugees to get some clean water, to give them medication. At his work, he got uh, arrested by the Sudanese uh, security force. At night, around 1 a.m., uh, the security force came to our house. And from there, they started beating up my uh, my aunt. And I was sleeping there in the door uh, at the room with uh, my cousin. And all we heard was the sound of my aunt uh, screaming. Mm. And we got up as I opened the door. All I felt was the butt of the, the rifle on my jaw. So we spent five days in the hospital. After five days, we took the train to Egypt. Uh, we came to Egypt. Then in 2001, our name came up saying, okay, you got a grant to go to United States. When did you discover, Gore, that you had a gift for running? All I learned as growing up is you only run when someone is chasing you to kill you. So you run to save your life. I know I could be good at it if someone chased me with a knife or gun or something, I'd be able to save my life. But mm. I didn't know that until I came to United States uh, when I started school in Concord, New Hampshire. My teacher kind of noticed something and said, this kid, I think if we could put him into some sport, he could be potentially good. And uh, so he went and talked to the high school track coach and came and talked to me, the gym teacher, and said, you know what, I think you should try out the track. I finally said, okay, I can try it out. So coach, he set an appointment with me, and he said, okay, team selection is close now, so I don't know if I would be able to take you, but I will try. So he 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 tests me, uh, came and show up with my basketball shirt and my basketball shoes, and he let me run on the track. That was in Concord, New Hampshire some years ago. Now you're in Flagstaff, Arizona, training for the marathon. But from what I gather, you're pretty new to the marathon. When did you start training for this distance? I started training in, uh, I would say, almost August of last year. Just last and year? August of 2011, that's when I started uh, training. You're lobbying to compete under the Olympic flag now, which is granted by the IOC for athletes from countries without Olympic committees like South Sudan, where you're from. What has the IOC said about your your bid? I haven't heard anything uh, really uh, positive about IOC. They wanted me to go with the Sudan team and and go represent uh, Sudan. And the Sudan itself, uh, they extend invitational to me I greatly appreciate what they have done, but I have their own country now, even though I'm a refugee, but my family and by birth, mm. South Sudanese, it would be disappointed and embarrassment to me and the people of South Sudan who died for the freedom, uh, including my brother, who I just uh, lost in 2002 after I came here. Mm. He was my hero. I always woke up every morning and went for him. And for me to just do that with the talent God gave me, it would not be something that I would live to take that kind of robbery. And if the IOC doesn't let you go, I mean, wh- where does that leave you? If it turns out to be the case that IOC is not accepting me, but if 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 I just look in this way, if IOC is accepting the other athletes, 
uh, running under the Olympic flag and they're not accepting me, then that is something that I would just leave it to everyone to see what what kind of, you know, that I should deserve the same opportunity as the other athletes as well from different countries who are being granted to compete under the Olympic flag. So I should be given the same opportunity, and the South Sudan itself should be getting the same opportunity too. Gore Marial is hoping to compete as an independent participant in the marathon at the Summer Games later this month. Gore, thank you so much, and good luck with your efforts. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, and thank you for everyone who are listening. You can see a picture of Gore Marial at age 11 in Sudan, along with photos of him today. That's all at theworld.org. Marathon runners are among the fittest human beings on the planet. They don't have to worry about this news headline. Researchers say physical inactivity is to blame for one out of ten deaths around the globe, about the same as deaths caused by smoking. Later in the program, we're going to hear more about that worrisome finding. First, though, here's a geo-quiz for all of us couch potatoes. Here in the U.S., only six out of every ten adults are sufficiently active. But when it comes to inactivity, we Americans have plenty of company around the globe. The researchers we mentioned surveyed 122 countries and ranked them by level of exercise. The question for you is, which three countries on that list are the most slothful? One is a Mediterranean nation, one's in Africa, and the third is in the Middle East. In all three, close to 70% of adults are getting too little exercise. We'll name the countries in a few minutes. In the meantime, feel free to do some sit-ups or push-ups, something, anything. Just keep the radio on, please. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, a dancer who started out as an orphan in war-torn Sierra Leone. She was inspired to become a ballerina by a photograph she found in a magazine as a child. That feeling from when I first saw that magazine has always been with me, and all I want to do is dance, and all I want to do is become a professional ballerina. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. There are few things more painful when you're growing up than to be called last for a team or a club. But for 17-year-old ballet dancer Michaela DePrince, it was tougher than that. She lived in Sierra Leone during the country's civil war. Rebels killed her father. Her mother and her three brothers also died. And in the orphanage in Sierra Leone, Michaela was more or less an untouchable, a devil child, they called her, last in line for everything. But despite those overwhelming challenges, Michaela has emerged on top. Michaela de Prince joins us from Johannesburg, South Africa, and Michaela will explain in a moment why you're there in Johannesburg. First, though, tell our listeners what it was that kept you going through those tragic and desperate years in Sierra Leone. It was a photograph you saw in a magazine. Yes, um, it was a photograph. Um, it was a picture of a ballerina, and seeing that dancer, seeing it at such a terrible time in my life that it just completely gave me hope, and it just 
you know, I thought to myself, if I ever got adopted, maybe I could be just like this person. And I just kept on holding on to that magazine until I got adopted. And now I'm a ballerina. Well, hoping to become a ballerina. Well, hoping to become, I think, is a, is a little modest. Tomorrow, tell us what you'll be doing in South Africa. Um, it will be my debut as a professional ballet dancer. Um, I will be performing Gonar with the South African Ballet. Um, I'll be performing Le Corsair, um, and it will be my first full-length classical ballet. Congratulations to you. Thank you. Tell us, though, what was it about that photograph of that ballerina uh, that so captivated you? Was it the colors? Was it it her gesture or pose? What was it? I had never seen something like that before. Of course, I've seen, you know, magazines, but I never saw someone so elegant and so beautiful. And the fact that she was on her toes, that was so amazing to me. And I didn't understand how she could possibly do that. And I just thought, you know, Maybe I could be like that. Maybe I could be on my toes. And I remember practicing, you know, being on my tippy toes. And actually, in the long run, it really, really helped me with point. Now, there are other chapters, Michaela, obviously in between that you need to tell us about. You didn't go from Sierra Leone straight to South Africa. What happened when the Civil War ended in Sierra Leone? When I was there, people were getting killed. And I I had no idea why. I didn't understand why until I got adopted, until my uh, mother explained to me what was going on. And even then, I was, I di- it didn't make sense. I think war is just, uh, I don't know, I don't even want to get into it. But it was terrible being there, being called names. I lost one of my teachers there. Um, I even have a scar because of that incident. Um, it was just, it was an awful time for me. I mean, it, it's a very grim story what happened to uh, your teacher, a favorite teacher of yours who was pregnant and, and the rebels, they eviscerated her body. Yes, because she had a baby girl and not a baby boy. Um, In Sierra Leone, what they did was, um, if it was a boy, they would keep the boy and train him into becoming a rebel. But it was a girl, and so they were angry about the fact that it was a girl, and so they cut my uh, teacher's arms and legs off and left her there. And I was trying to save her at that moment, so I went underneath the gate, and there was a little boy there, and so he cut my stomach, too. And I have a scar because of it, and... um, and I just pretty much blacked out after that. I just It was just awful seeing someone that cared for me so much, especially in my situation, that nobody liked me except my best friend and the aunties calling me names and telling me that I was worth nothing and that I was, you know, the devil's child. It was just, it was terrible for me. Michaela, you're, you're telling me this so matter-of-factly, rushing through the details. It's almost like you, you don't want to talk or think about it anymore, which is totally understandable. Is it constantly on your mind, though? It is not constantly on my mind. It's the, um, whenever I do talk about it, it just brings back memories. And I try, and I've been trying ever since I was, you know, six to just push it out of my mind because I don't want to focus on that anymore. I just want to focus on my future. As we said earlier, you were always last in line for everything in the orphanage, but the girl who was right behind you at number 26 out of the 27 kids, you, you wanted her adopted too. Tell us about that. Her name was Mia. Well, she and I had the exact same first name, which is why we both got adopted. Um, We were matmates. The reason why she was number 26 was because she would wet the bed and she was left-handed. And the fact that she was left-handed, they made her, you know, like come before me and not be able to have enough food, get terrible clothes, get terrible toys. It's just, ugh. I just, I don't understand why they treated the kids that way. I really don't. But she's your sister now, right? 
Yeah, the reason why she's my sister is because my mom, um, she called the agency and asked, well, we would like to adopt so-and-so. And they were asking, well, which one? Because I, I had the exact same first name. Mm. And, well, they were like, well, no one wants this little girl because she has um, spots on her neck and she's a devil's child. And they don't want a kid like that. And so she called my father. He was in Japan. And she woke him up at night and she asked, is it okay if we adopt this other little girl? Mm. And it's really funny because my father thought he was dreaming. So he just went with it and said, yes. And he called my mother <laughs> and said, I, um, I had a dream. You asked me if we could adopt this other kid. And it's funny because I said, yes, is it true? And she's like, yes, you said yes. So I'm going to do it. And so I got adopted because me and I had the exact same first name. And I'm so grateful that my mom has such a big heart and is so accepting of people and adopted me too. Now, you've had numerous opportunities to dance in the U.S., including a Ballet Theater of Harlem, I understand. But in terms of ballet, you've also faced some challenges. You've heard multiple times, for example, that the world of ballet is not ready for a black dancer to take on certain roles. I'm actually going to dance theater of Harlem in August. But, um, yeah, I've been told a lot. I've had teachers who have supported me and said, you know what, we see something in you and we think you're going to make it. But then I've had those teachers who have told me, well, you don't have the right body type and you're not going to make it. And I was 10 years old and one of my teachers told my mom, we don't put a lot of effort into black dancers because they get fat when they're older and big boobs. And it's just uh, it's just crazy how people have that mindset of black people and how they just they just can't get it out of their mind. And it's, it's very upsetting sometimes. Um, how how did, that, did, did that make you want to kind of prove them wrong and, and push beyond those stereotypes? Well, the first time I heard it, I believed them. I had um, I was eight years old when the first time that happened. And I just thought, wow, maybe I should quit. And I just thought maybe maybe they're right. They I think they're right because, you know, they're dancers and they're teachers and they're adults. But then I was almost 11, 10 or 11 or something. And my brother, Teddy, was telling me, you know, Michaela, I see a gift in you and I think you are going to make it. He was also a dancer. Him telling me that, I was just like, you know, maybe you're right and I can make it. And so I stopped focusing on all those negative things that teachers were telling me and even dancers were telling me. And I just tried to focus on dance as much as I could. And I had just so much determination of proving all those people wrong. Michaela, how much, going back now to Sierra Leone, I'm curious to know how much your dreams of being a ballerina and that picture that you kept with you, in, tucked in your underwear, how much that sustained you through those dark years in Sierra Leone? Do you think it was crucial to your making it out alive? I think it was the reason why I said I made myself stay alive. Um, I had terrible malnutrition. Um, I had a terrible hernia at the time, which no one took care of. Um, and having that picture and my mat mate and my sister now, just, it saved me. The, that ballerina saved me from losing my teacher. It saved me from, you know, being treated so badly. And then when I got adopted, that feeling from when I first saw that magazine has always been with me. And that's also saving me because all I want to do is dance. And all I want to do is become a professional ballerina. And I also want to share that love with kids in Sierra Leone when I'm older. I do want to open an art school um, for dance, and I just want them to have the exact same opportunity I had. 17-year-old Michaela DePrince, a survivor of the Sierra Leone Civil War. We look forward to seeing you on the stage for years to come, Michaela. Congratulations, and thanks for speaking with us. Thank you so much. 
What you're hearing is the Pas de Trois from Le Corsaire. Michaela will be performing in Le Corsaire tomorrow night at the Joburg Theater in South Africa, her professional debut. You can see Michaela de Prince pirouette and plie in her production of La Esmeralda. The video is at theworld.org. Growing up between two cultures requires juggling cultural identities. The American children of foreign-born parents know that firsthand. A new study looks at how this cultural juggling impacts the brain through a musical lens. Audrey Quinn has that story. Jason Vignoles grew up in New York City, but his parents are Argentine. Like a lot of children of immigrants, he spoke two languages with his family. I'd be on the phone with my parents and... I'll just switch back and forth. Uh, If I can't think of the word right away in in Spanish, I'll say it in English, but then keep on going with the conversation. Vignole's family would also switch back and forth between other things American and Argentine, sports team loyalties, cuisines, and especially musical styles. His mom was a big fan of the Beatles. Close your eyes and I'll kiss you tomorrow. Anytime a Beatles song would come on the radio on the oldest station, she'd like come grab me and make me dance. The same kitchen floor dance party would also include more traditional Latino music, like Cielito Lindo. Ay, 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 canta no They'd also dance along to Madonna, then a bit of Argentine tango. Patrick Wong studies how the brain processes sound at Northwestern University. He recently became interested in people like Vignoles. Listeners who grew up listening to Beatles and tangos uh, side by side, they might develop a brain that is different. Different from someone who grew up listening to just Western music or just Latin music. Wong was wondering if the brain has special ways of handling two musical systems. He recruited people who grew up listening primarily to Western popular music. And then he had another group of people, Indian Americans, who grew up listening to both Western music and the traditional music of India. These are Indian rhythms. To his research subjects who grew up with just Western music, that didn't sound, well, quite so homey. They use a dial to tell us uh, the tension that they feel in the music that they hear. And most of the monocultural Americans dialed in saying the Indian music had more tension. But the people who grew up with both Western and Indian music, they didn't feel any more tension in one music than another. Here's the Western music Wong used. People who are equally at home listening to two different cultures of music, Wong calls these people bi-musicals. Now, he had his study participants listen to the music inside a scanner. We use a technology called functional magnetic resonance imaging. That's fMRI for short. So that's basically a technology that can help us look at how to bring activate. And what did you see? So what we found was that if you were bi-musical, you tend to engage our larger network of the brain when you listen to the two kinds of music. The people who had grown up with both Indian and Western music They had a more elaborate brain system for listening than the people who grew up with just Western music. Wong's by musicals also engaged more areas of their brain when listening to music. 
they engaged not only the auditory areas of the brain, but also the amygdala. The emotional region of the brain. So what we are thinking is that perhaps if you are bi-musical, to you to differentiate whether the music that you listen to is Western or Indian music, perhaps you also need to engage the emotional part of the brain to separate out the two types of music. Wong isn't saying that only bi-musical people experience music emotionally. We all do that. It's more that bi-musicals may tap into that region of the brain in order to toggle between multiple musical styles. Gigi Luke researches bilingual learning at Harvard. She's also seen signs of enhancements in the brains of people who grew up with two verbal languages. Generally speaking, we found a better performance in what we call executive functions, which involve things like planning, problem solving, multitasking. And we see this advantage across the lifespan from young children to older adults. Now, bilingualism has clear differences from Wang's bimusicalism. For one thing, speaking a language is more active than listening to music. Still, Gigi Luke's not surprised by Wang's findings. She believes that all that switching, whether between languages or between musical cultures, it leaves a physiological impact. Our experiences, whether they're musical or linguistic, actually shape our brain and give us a qualitative difference in brain networks. We still have more to learn about just how that qualitative difference plays out in the bi-musical brain. But Patrick Wong believes his research opens a door. This is telling us that perhaps being bicultural might change our biology in a fundamental way. But does that give the bi-musical, bi-cultural mind the same sort of cognitive edge as the bilingual mind? That's for a future study. For the world, I'm Audrey Quinn. We have more on the bi-musical mind in this week's World in Words podcast. To listen, just go to theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from WGBH, producer of Market Warriors, from the people that brought you Antiques Roadshow. Four pickers scour flea markets nationwide, hoping to outprofit their competitors at auction. Market Warriors, Monday night at nine, eight central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is the World. With the Olympics coming up, you'll be hearing a lot about athletes who do a ton of exercise. If that doesn't motivate you, maybe this will. Researchers say that one in ten deaths around the globe are caused by inactivity. A paper published by the British medical journal The Lancet also ranks nations by their levels of physical activity. The three countries we asked you to name in our geoquiz today were at the bottom of the list. They are Malta, Swaziland, and Saudi Arabia. But the study looks at the global picture. Gregory Heath from the University of Tennessee helped conduct the research, which was based on a survey of 122 nations. Across all those countries, in terms of inactivity status, roughly one-third of the world's population is not achieving a significant amount of recommended physical activity to accrue some health benefit or even fitness benefit. So a third of the population is not getting an adequate amount across global population. Mm. How worried are you by those numbers? Well, the, the numbers are quite concerning simply because What we expect to have happen if we don't do something in a proactive sort of way is that we would expect this proportion to actually go up because you've got to realize that the majority of the population lives in the economically developing world. Hmm. So, you know, essentially the majority of the population is 
potentially going to be influenced by rapid development, which is a good thing. I mean, economically, developing those countries is excellent in terms of raising the standard of living. But hopefully, those of us who have experienced that can share with our insights. And, and, uh, and indeed, that's happening in, in places in, in Latin America, for example. I'm wondering if you found a correlation between lack of development in a country and increased exercise. I mean, for example, you may not have gyms, but you've got to walk 10 miles to get a bucket of water. Right. No, that's exactly the pattern that we see in the lower income countries where there's less dependence, you know, on motorized transport. So generally speaking, the issue is urbanization. And as that happens, you know, we can build our cities and communities in such a way that that they do offer the opportunity to be more active, not only in terms of recreation and open space, but also transport in particular. Right. I mean, uh, you, to talk about solutions for a moment, I mean, you highlight the ciclovia, an idea that comes out of Bogota in Colombia, where exercise is taken into the streets. Right, exactly. And it's rather large public campaigns where we're talking miles of road, which are closed to vehicular traffic, um, where communities are encouraged if citizens are encouraged to come out and just be active, it could be any form of activity, not just, it's not like a race or anything like that. It's, it's a celebration. And it's part and parcel of the culture that 50% of the population is engaged in, that engage themselves in this activity are, are achieving the recommended levels of physical activity. How often does Bogota close the streets off for the ciclovia? Every Sunday from mm. 9 in the morning or 8 in the morning till about 2 in the afternoon. Other communities, for example, in Mexico and in Guadalajara, they do the same kind of campaign, but it's not as frequent. So they do maybe once a month. What it does is it it certainly sends a statement about the importance of activity, but also the enjoyment associated with it and the socialization and the social support. And it raises, you know, the awareness of the community. And obviously it has some impact. It certainly has in Colombia. Another solution to the inactivity problem uh, around the world uh, that you suggest in your study is how mobile phones might encourage people to become more physically active. Well, the idea there is, for example, messaging, texting and so forth with physical activity promotion messages and Mm. cues that they were able to demonstrate in a number of studies that they could successfully impact the population. And and so the, the thought is, is that this is a potentially powerful intervention tool Gregory Heath, epidemiologist at the University of Tennessee. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you. Finally today, we go to Austin, Texas, to meet a South African producer and musician. Spoke Matambo takes Western hip-hop and mixes it with South African electronic dance music. Reporter Marissa Neff has his story. Spoke Matambo came of age as South Africa was transitioning out of apartheid. The first 10 years of my life were in Soweto, in a neighborhood called Rockville. It was a really happy, tight, close-knit community, but like kind of affluent, but the next street would be less having. Spoke spent his teenage years in the suburbs of Johannesburg before leaving to go to medical school in Cape Town. But that didn't last long. Then I dropped out after two years of realizing, you know, I wanted to make music. Spoke's 
As South Africa's social structure was changing, the music scene was changing as well. There was this radio station, YFM, Youth Radio, you know. And after after apartheid went down, there was a huge explosion of youth energy in South Africa from, you know, quite those stuff to hip-hop being there from early. My big brother, he introduced me to rap when I was like, you know, a baby. He's 10 years older than me. So everything he was into as a teenager, I got, you know, as far as... Uh, the early 90s rap staples, that's what I grew up listening to a lot. You know? Cassettes of groups like De La Soul, A Tribe Called Quest, and Public Enemy loomed large in his brother's collection. Don't believe the hype, it's a sequel. As an equal, can I get this through to you? My 98 booming with a trunk of funk. All the jealous folks can't stop the dunk. Spoke says being bombarded by Western pop culture inspired a wanderlust that took him through his early 20s. These days, he's still out on the road, a lot. His latest album, Father Creeper, was recorded in Johannesburg, Sweden, Portland, and Utah. But in the past few years, he's rediscovered a love of home and feels much more connected with what's happening there musically. He coined the phrase township tech to describe a facet of South Africa's current soundscape. Township tech is a phrase that I kind of stuck together to describe a lot of great electronic music coming out of South Africa that I was particularly inspired by from, you know, 2007 up to now. It kind of reinvigorated my um, energy as a musician. It showed me that I don't need to always emulate what's happening in the rest of the world. There's great stuff happening at home, you know. For The World, I'm Marissa Neff. Spoke Matambo rhymes. See and hear it for yourself. We have one of his videos at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for tuning in. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Carnegie Corporation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Annenberg Foundation, the Rita Allen Foundation, and the PRI Program Fund, whose donors support the critical work of the nonprofit sector, Contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org. PRI, Public Radio International.